The Philosophy of Style, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Philosophy of Style by Herbert Spencer, Part 2. Causes of Force in Language, Which Depend Upon Economy in the Mental Sensibilities. Division 1. The Law of Mental Exhaustion and Repair. Paragraph 58. A few paragraphs only can be devoted to a second division of our subject that here presents itself. To pursue in detail the law of effect as applying to the larger features of composition would carry us beyond our limits, but we may briefly indicate a further aspect of the general principle hitherto traced out, and hint a few of its wider applications. Paragraph 59. Thus far, then, we have considered only those causes of force in language which depend upon economy of the mental energies. We have now to glance at those which depend upon economy of the mental sensibilities. Questionable, though this division may be as a psychological one, it will yet serve roughly to indicate the remaining field of investigation. It will suggest that besides considering the extent to which any faculty or group of faculties is tasked in receiving a form of words and realizing its contained idea, we have to consider the state in which this faculty or group of faculties is left, and how the reception of subsequent sentences and images will be influenced by that state. Without going at length into so wide a topic as the exercise of faculties and its reactive effects, it will be sufficient here to call to mind that every faculty, when in a state of normal activity, is most capable at the outset, and that the change in its condition, which ends in what we term exhaustion, begins simultaneously with its exercise. This generalization, with which we are all familiar in our bodily experiences, and which our daily language recognizes as true of the mind as a whole, is equally true of each mental power. From the simplest of the senses to the most complex of the sentiments, if we hold a flower to the nose for long, we become insensible to its scent. We say of a very brilliant flash of lightning that it blinds us, which means that our eyes have for a time lost their ability to perceive light. After eating a quantity of honey, we are apt to think our tea is without sugar. The phrase, a deafening roar, implies that men find a very loud sound temporarily incapacitates them for hearing faint ones. To a hand which has for some time carried a heavy body, small bodies afterwards lifted seem to have lost their weight. Now the truth at once recognized in these, its extreme manifestations, may be traced throughout. It may be shown that, alike in the reflective faculties, in the imagination, in the perceptions of the beautiful, in the ludicrous, the sublime, in the sentiments, the instincts, in all the mental powers, however we may classify them, action exhausts, and that in proportion as the action is violent, the subsequent prostration is great. Paragraph 60. Equally throughout the whole nature may be traced the law that exercised facilities are ever tending to resume their original state. Not only after continued rest do they regain their full power, but only 
do brief secessions partially reinvigorate them but even while they are in action the resulting exhaustion is ever being neutralized the two processes of waste and repair go on together hence with facilities habitually exercised as the senses of all persons or the muscles of any one who is strong it happens that during moderate activity the repair is so nearly equal to the waste that the diminution of power is scarcely appreciable and it is only when the activity has been long continued or has been very violent that the repair becomes so far in arrear of the waste as to produce a perceptible prostration in all cases however when by the action of a faculty waste has been incurred some lapse of time must take place before full efficiency can be reacquired and this time must be long in proportion as the waste has been great division two explanation of climax antithesis and anticlimax paragraph sixty one keeping in mind these general truths we shall be in a condition to understand certain causes of effect in composition now to be considered every perception received and every conception realized entailing some amount of waste or as liebig would say some change of matter in the brain and the efficiency of the faculties subject to this waste being thereby temporary though often but momentarily diminished the resulting partial inability must affect the acts of perception and conception that immediately succeed and hence we may expect that the vividness with which images are realized will in many cases depend on the order of their presentation even when one order is as convenient to the understanding as the other paragraph sixty two there are sundry facts which alike illustrate this and are explained by it climax is one of them the marked effect obtained by placing last the most striking of any series of images and the weakness often the ludicrous weakness produced by reversing this arrangement depends on the general law indicated as immediately after looking at the sun we cannot perceive the light of a fire while by looking at the fire first and the sun afterwards we can perceive both so after receiving a brilliant or weighty or terrible thought we cannot appreciate a less brilliant less weighty or less terrible one while by reversing the order we can appreciate each in antithesis again we may recognize the same general truth the opposition of two thoughts that are the reverse of each other in some prominent trait ensures an impressive effect and does this by giving a momentary relaxation to the faculties addressed if after a series of images of an ordinary character appealing in one moderate degree to the sentiment of reverence or approbation or beauty the mind has presented to it a very insignificant a very unworthy or a very ugly image the faculty of reverence or approbation or beauty as the case may be having for the time nothing to do tends to resume its full power and will immediately afterwards appreciate a vast admirable or beautiful image better than it would otherwise do conversely where the idea of absurdity due to extreme insignificance is to be pronounced it may greatly intensify by placing it after something highly impressive especially if the form of phrase implies that something still more impressive is coming
Paragraph 63. Thus we see that the phenomena of climax, antithesis, and anticlimax alike result from this general principle. Improbable as these momentary variations in susceptibility may seem, we cannot doubt their occurrence when we contemplate the analogous variations in the susceptibility of the senses. Referring once more to phenomena of vision, everyone knows that a patch of black on a white ground looks blacker, and a patch of white on a black ground looks whiter than elsewhere. As the blackness and the whiteness must really be the same, the only assignable cause for this is a difference in their actions upon us, dependent upon the different states of our faculties. It is simply a visual antithesis. Division 3. Need of Variety. Paragraph 64. But this extension of the general principle of economy, this further condition to the effective composition, that the sensitiveness of the faculties must be continuously husbanded, includes much more than has been yet hinted. It implies not only that certain arrangements and certain juxtapositions of connected ideas are best, but that some modes of dividing and presenting a subject will be more striking than others, and that, too, irrespective of its logical cohesion. It shows why we must progress from the less interesting to the more interesting, and why not only the composition as a whole, but each of its successive proportions should tend towards a climax. At the same time, it forbids long continuity of the same kind of thought, or repeated production of like effects. It warns us against the error committed both by Pope in his poems and by Bacon in his essays, the error, namely, of consistently employing forcible forms of expression, and it points out that as the easiest posture by and by becomes fatiguing, and is with pleasure exchanged for one less easy, so the most perfectly constructed sentences will soon weary, and relief will be given by using those of an inferior kind. Paragraph 65. Further, we may infer from it not only that we should avoid generally combining our words in one manner, however good, or working out our figures and illustrations in one way, however telling, but that we should avoid anything like uniform adherence, even to the wider conditions of effect. We should not make every section of our subject progress in interest. We should not always rise to a climax as we saw that, in single sentences, it is but rarely allowed to fulfill all the conditions to strength, so, in the larger sections of a composition, we must not often conform entirely to the law indicated. We must subordinate the component effect to the total effect. Paragraph 66. In deciding how practically to carry out the principles of artistic composition, we may derive help by bearing in mind a fact already pointed out the fitness of certain verbal arrangements for certain kinds of thought, that consistent variety in the mode of presenting ideas which the theory demands will in a great degree result from a skillful adaptation of the form to the matter. We saw how the direct or inverted sentence is spontaneously used by excited people, and how their language is also characterized by figures of speech and by extreme brevity. Hence these may, with advantage, predominate in emotional passages, and may increase as the emotion rises. On the other hand, for complex ideas, the indirect sentence seems to be the best vehicle. In conversation, the excitement produced by 
the near approach to a desired conclusion will often show itself in a series of short, sharp sentences, while in impressing a view already enunciated, we generally make our periods voluminous by piling thought upon thought. These natural modes of procedure may serve as guides in writing. Keen observation and skillful analysis would, in like manner, detect further peculiarities of expression produced by other attributes of mind, and by paying due attention to all such traits. A writer possessed of sufficient versatility might make some approach to a completely organized work. Division 4. The Ideal Writer. Paragraph 67. This species of composition, which the law of effect points out as the perfect one, is the one which high genius tends naturally to produce. As we found that the kinds of sentences which are theoretically best are those generally employed by superior minds, and by inferior minds when excitement has raised them, so we shall find that the ideal form for a poem, essay, or fiction is that which the ideal writer would evolve spontaneously one in whom the powers of expression fully respond to the state of feeling, would unconsciously use that variety in the mode of presenting his thoughts, which art demands. This consistent employment of one species of phraseology, which all have now to strive against, implies an undeveloped faculty of language. To have a specific style is to be poor in speech. If we remember that, in the far past, men had only nouns and verbs to convey their ideas with, and that from then to now the growth has been towards a greater number of implements of thought, and consequently towards a greater complexity and variety in their combinations, we may infer that we are now, in our use of sentences, much what the primitive man was in his use of words, and that a continuance of the process that has hitherto gone on must produce increasing heterogeneity in our modes of expression. As now, in a fine nature, the play of the features, the tones of the voice, and its cadence, vary in harmony with every thought uttered, so, in one possessed of a fully developed power of speech, the mold in which each combination of words is cast will similarly vary with, and be appropriate to, the sentiment. Paragraph 68 that a perfectly endowed man must unconsciously write in all styles, we may infer from considering how styles originate. Why is Johnson pompous, Goldsmith simple? Why is one author abrupt, another rhythmical, another concise? Evidently, in each case, the habitual mode of utterance must depend upon the habitual balance of the nature. The predominant feelings have by use trained the intellect to represent them, and while long, though unconscious, discipline has made it do this efficiently, it remains, from lack of practice, incapable of doing the same for the less active feelings, and when these are excited, the usual verbal forms undergo but slight modification. Let the powers of speech be fully developed, however, let the ability of the intellect to utter the emotions be complete, and this fixity of style will disappear. The perfect writer will express himself as Junius when in the Junius frame of mind. When he feels as Lamb felt, will use a like familiar speech, and will fall into the ruggedness of Carlyle when in a Carlinian mood. Now he will be rhythmical, and now irregular. Here his language will be plain, and there ornate. 
Sometimes his sentences will be balanced, and other times unsymmetrical. For a while there will be considerable sameness, and then again great variety. His mode of expression naturally responding to his state of feeling. There will flow from his pen a composition changing to the same degree that the aspects of his subject change. He will thus, without effort, conform to what we have seen to be the laws of effect. And while his work presents to the reader that variety needful to prevent continuous exertion of the same faculties, it will also answer to the description of all highly organized products, both of man and of nature. It will not be a series of like parts simply placed in juxtaposition, but one whole made up of unlike parts that are mutually dependent. End of part two. End of Philosophy of Style by Herbert Spencer.